is to get help. So the debate was um, whether we should get a guide or not. And one of us thought that we should get a guide. And actually, that was me. I told, me, told Stephanie I wouldn't throw under the bus. But my wife and our friend said, we don't need a guide. We got a map. We got a compass. We're professionals and adults and have degrees. We can figure this out. Well, that was a terrible mistake because the first day of the of our trek, the Halumbu Circuit, it's supposed to be a five-day trek, we walked all day long. And people that told us it was five hours, it took like 10 hours. And by the time we got to the top, we had to get to the top of the mountain and descend a little bit to find the tea house or the small hotel that we were at. Um, and by the time we got to the top, it was dark. We couldn't see anything. There's no lights, there's no street lights or anything like that. So it was pitch black. We were stumbling around, we had some small flashlights, but I was scared. I was afraid, so like, it's, it's, it was in December, so the days are warm, like 60s in Fahrenheit, but they get below zero in the evening. So it was getting cold, it was dark, we had no idea. Uh, where we were, where this place was. We could not find it, could not find it out on the map. So my thought was, we're gonna have to like sleep outside and we not be eaten by any wild animals. However, by God's grace, we found a, a man tending some plants um, and by the light of his blackberry, we were able to see him and we rushed to him and said, help us find this and it was not far away. And we found the tea house, slept. The next day, we still, for some reason, we decided, okay, the first day was super hard, but I think from now on, it's gonna be so easy. We'll, we'll do it, we took a day off, because it was pretty traumatic for all of us. And then we, the next day, we were gonna go out again. And the next day was even worse, because we made a wrong turn. We ended up descending through a bunch of terraced rice farms and through, we had to like hike down a ravine to the river, because on the map, if the river was there, we could make the, the river could make, help us get to where we needed to go. But we were completely lost. My wife got like stung by these stinging nettles in these bushes, and we're climbing down, climbing over rocks, and this is one of the bridges. My wife had to climb over, and this was, this was enhanced by lighting, but it was dark. And like, we're gonna fall into one of these rivers and die. We actually had to go to some person I didn't know, and with the, there's a bunch of kids there, and we end up sleeping on their cement floor, um, even though I thought they were going to kill us because of the money that we had in our uh, in our wallets. But they didn't kill us. But it was miserable. None of us slept well. And then as soon as we got up, we made our way to the next destination, and then we we didn't hike anymore. We found the next town, and we were, like, we're going back to Kathmandu. So the moral of that story is: if you go to Nepal, get a guide. Um, because without one, you're lost, you're scared, you're confused, you're in grave danger. And this is how the Bible is for the Christian. The Bible is like a guide for us. We can live without it, like I lived in Nepal, I survived miraculously, but it makes a much more difficult and dangerous experience if you're living the Christian life without the Bible as your guide. It's not fun. So the verse I have, I want to read from is in 2 Timothy 
chapter 3, 14 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 2 Timothy, where's my water? 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. And it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Last week we talked about God has good works set up for you in Kuwait. Well, to be equipped for these works, we need to understand what the Bible is and what it says. So I've got three points today. My first point is, what is this guide we are trusting? What is the Bible? The Bible means book, biblos. And um, it's a collection of books written in both Hebrew and Greek. And they use, in the New Testament, they use Koine Greek, which is the common Greek of the day. And there are 66 books in the entire Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the, there's multiple authors. It's not one person who wrote the whole thing in one go. Many people wrote it over about... 1,500 years. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books. If you ever started from the beginning of the Bible, the first five books is called the Torah, which is the most important part of the law for the Jewish people. The first five books is the Torah or the Pentateuch. There's also history books. We're going to, um, we're probably going to start this, a series on Nehemiah in a few weeks. And that's part of the history of the people of God. There is poetry. You have Song of Songs. You have Proverbs. And then there's the prophets. Last year we did the prophet of Jonah. There's many prophets that spoke, that foretold the future, and foretold what the people should be doing right then. And in the Hebrew, they had, they had different the books are the same, but they order them differently. It was called the Tanakh, which is a, uh, like an acronym for Torah, which is the first five books. Nevi'im, for the N, for the N, which means the prophets, all the prophets. And then the Ketuvim, which is the writings. So they called it the Tanakh. But it's the same books and the same, uh, the order is different, but the books are exactly the same. Now, this was finished. The Old Testament was finished in the 3rd century B.C. So 300 years before Jesus, the writings were finished. They knew that was the canon. All Jews subscribed to the same Old Testament books. And what do these books say? So in a nutshell, they say that there is a creator who is this one God, and he made humans and this whole world and everything in it for his good, for our good. And he created humans to be in his image and to rule over all the things that are in this world, to rule over the people, and to rule over the animals and the creation itself. And it was a paradise. It was a wonderful place without sin, without death. Right? It says the man and woman were naked and unashamed. 
And this is, and God made the garden wonderful for them to enjoy. However, sin entered the world. If you, all you have to do is go to chapter 3, and sin entered the world because there is one fruit that God asked them not to eat, and because of their disobedience, and because of the serpents tempting them, Eve ate the, the fruit, and then her husband did too, Adam. So because of this sin, they were aware of their shame, and they broke God's rule, and they broke God's heart, and so God had to kick them out of the garden into the wilderness, and he cursed them. He cursed the man for working, he cursed the woman with painful and difficult childbirth, and he cursed the entire world. It says in Romans that the creation groans with eager longing for the redemption of the, of the children of God. So the creation itself is subjected to death. And he said, in the day you eat this fruit, you will surely die. And spiritually, men did die. Men and women died. And the creation became hostile. Right, Their environment around them was, was hostile towards them. Their relationship was broken. Because he says, your desire will be for the man, but the man will rule over you. So conflict in the marriage. But he didn't leave them there. He said, I will bring somebody who will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bite his heel. So wanting a savior for them. And as man grew and multiplied and filled the earth, evil grew with it. And it said that... Uh, early in the Old Testament, that the heart of man was only on evil continually, it says. So he raised up Noah to flood the earth because people were so bad he had to eliminate them. And this family were the only survivors of this and made a covenant with them, like, you will be my new people to rule over the earth. And then he, he spoke to Abraham and he made a covenant with him and said, I will make your descendants as stars in the sky or the sand of the seashore. And he did, but they were subjected to slavery because of, their, because of sin and rebellion. And then God raised up Moses to deliver the people from their slavery to Egypt. And he restored them, and he gave them the law. This is one of the main parts of the Torah, is the law of Moses. He said, if you keep this law, you will be blessed. You will be saved from your enemies. I will be with you. I will be your God. I will give you this land flowing with milk and honey. But if you disobey, there will be consequences. There will be death. There will be destruction. There will be sorrow. And what did the people choose? They chose their own way. God gave them the land. God gave them a king. David raised up another rescuer, another deliverer, a, a man whose heart loved God and was, their, was their, their best king. However, even David sinned gravely and his son sinned even more and the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom and, and, and southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was taken into exile by the Assyrians. And then later, because all their kings were bad, they all disobeyed God. The southern kingdom, some, some kings obeyed God, but most were also bad. They were taken by the Babylonians a few hundred years later. And he told the people, I will send somebody 
who will rescue you from your sins. So that's the whole lead-up of the Old Testament, waiting for this ultimate deliverer, someone who is like Noah, like Abraham, like Moses, like David, but better in every way. And this is the, per the person mentioned in Genesis who would crush the head of the serpent but would be also be bitten by him. So that's the Old Testament. The New Testament has 27 books. And this talks about the, the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek word for king. right? Jesus the king who is coming as, the, as King David did before. And the first four books are called Gospels. Gospels means good news. And it's the good news of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus for our sins, and the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. And this rescuer, even though he was perfect in every way, he never sinned. He lived a perfect life, perfectly obeyed God, better than any prophet in the Old Testament. He was rejected. Because the people of God were looking for a physical restoration. They wanted to be released from, at that time, the, the yoke of the Romans. They wanted to have their own land back. They were looking for a physical restoration. They weren't looking for a spiritual restoration. So because of that, they rejected Jesus. Jesus, they didn't want to be forgiven from their sins. They wanted to be rescued from the Romans and have their, the, the good old days back. So because of that, and because Jesus upset the status quo, he was rejected. He was sentenced to death. He was crucified. And this is planned by Jesus and God since the beginning. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus planned to go to the cross to absorb the punishment for my sins and your sins. We all sin, we all make mistakes, we all do wrong things, right? I can barely keep my own standards. How much less can I keep the standards of a perfect God? I cannot. And because of that, I deserve punishment. As God said in the garden, you, eat the, you sin, you will surely die. So death, physical death, and then spiritual death in hell. However, God put those sins on Jesus for our sin. And he, he died. He suffered, right? He suffered physical crucifixion is the most worst tortures there could possibly be. You suffered for hours until you actually choked to death. You asphyxiated. That's how you died. Because you pull yourself up from the cross to breathe, and you hang back down in incredible pain the whole time until you, until you died. He was also spiritually punished because God turned away from Jesus and put my sin on him and your sin on on him. And he died from that. And on the third day, he rose again, victorious over sin, showing that God accepted this sacrifice. Right? In the Old Testament, they had the sacrificial system under Moses, where when people sinned, they had to give an offering of a bull or a dove or a pigeon and sacrifice it to show the seriousness of sin. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice because he was morally perfect. Animals don't have morals. They're, they're based on instinct. But Jesus was a perfect sacrifice because he was morally perfect, never sinned. And then he rose again on the third day, showing that it was accepted. And then all who believe in him, all who put their faith in Jesus, not by the things that they do, but just by trusting that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, 
and you have eternal life with him. You are with him because you accept his sacrifice. You believe in him. That is what the Gospels of the New Testament say. After that, he ascended back into heaven. He was with the disciples. When he was resurrected, over 400 people saw him and interacted with him. And he was around for more than 40 days. But eventually he ascended back into heaven. And then he gave the apostles the Holy Spirit, the helper he promised them, the same power that gave Jesus to overcome sin. He gave that power to, to his disciples, for the apostles. And that's what the Acts of the Apostles, about the, the book after the four Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles. What did the apostles do after Jesus ascended? And basically talks about... Um, spreading the gospel through Peter, who was the leader of the church and the leader of the, of the Jewish, um, the Jewish Christians, and then Paul, who was the leader of the Gentile Christians, who preached the gospel to them. And then there's 13 letters Paul wrote about the gospel. We've studied them before. We've studied Philippians before. Uh, we also studied last year. Um, yeah, we studied Philippians from Paul. And then other people wrote letters too. Peter, which we studied last year. James, Jude, and John also wrote letters to the churches. Right? Because the church, like we're in church right now, church is the vehicle that God wants to use to redeem this earth. This is not just a social club, but this is what God has intended for his people to grow and connect and to reach this world. Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So we're not just here just together for, for fun. We're here, this is the means that God intends for us to, to grow, to become Christians, to grow in our faith, to reach others in our faith. We're recharged here and sent out into the world. So these letters were written to churches. And the final book of the New Testament is Revelation, which is when Jesus comes back. <coughs> Jesus said throughout the Gospels that he's coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. And the Revelation talks about that Jesus coming in power, not as a weak, marginalized person in the Sea of Galilee. But he comes in power to rip the skies open and judge his people and judge this earth. And that's not going to be our ultimate rescue. And it says at the end, in Revelation 21, that uh, the former things have passed away, and he's making all things new. There won't be any crying or pain in that place. Sorry. <laughs> so that, that's the, the hope that we have is in him. So that is what the Bible is. That is the God, just in, in a brief overview. My second point is that we can trust this guy. Now people say many different things about the Bible. If you've read the Da Vinci Code, you know, there's, there's other Gospels. But none of that stuff is, is, is true. People say the Old Testament was written much later. It was not written until 1000 AD. That is false. You know, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1945, which date back to the Old Testament times. And I told you, in the 3rd century BC, all Jews agree on what, what the scriptures are. There's no, like different factions that believe different things. They all know these are the Old Testament scriptures. The canon was not written much later in the Old Testament, 3rd century B.C. So it wasn't manipulated. There were not hidden books. 
They actually, one of the, if you look at your translation, if you read some of the Old Testament, it will say, you know, there could be slight variations in translations over, like, what kind of bird in the Old Testament they were referring to. And it'll say, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls say this, and the Septuagint, which is one of our oldest translations, and actually a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Septuagint means the 70, and according to Jewish history, there are 70 people who wrote the Old Testament. And that is, that is extremely old. That is before Christ, they had the Septuagint. These books were not written by other people than who it says. Jesus himself said that Moses wrote these books. Right? When he's talking to people about divorces, does not Moses say that God joined them together? So the same person that we assume is the writer of the Torah, which is Moses, Jesus affirms that. So Jesus had access to the Old Testament. He actually quoted the Old Testament to the devil from Deuteronomy when he was tempted in the wilderness. So he just, and he memorized it. And he knew it. It's the same verses we have today. There are no differences. So the Old Testament is a closed case. The New Testament also was not written much later. Within a generation of Jesus, the New Testament was finished. The Gospels that were circulated were very early. Paul himself, in some of his earliest letters, knew knew what the Gospels had said. So within one generation of Jesus, the, the canon was closed. Canon just means the books that all Christians agree on in the Bible. So these 27 books of the New Testament circulated since the time of the church fathers within a generation. So there, were, and there was no dispute or discussion about, uh, you know, which books are in the Bible, which books are not, from any of these old writings. Here's another verse that Jesus spoke. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, this is Exodus, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That was Jesus speaking to the people. Clearly aware of the Old Testament passages. Now what about these, if you may have heard about the Gnostic Gospels. Right, they were discovered in 1945. Um, these books. It, but there is zero mention in any of the early writings about the Gnostic Gospels. People say, oh, there these, there's the Gospel of Judas. There's the Gospel that said Jesus had a wife and kids. Those exist, but no one knew about them. They were discovered recently. Right? None of the church fathers, none of the, early, none of the apostles make any mention to these Gnostic Gospels. No one has also said that they are authoritative in any way. The Bible that we have, you can trust it that it is the Word of God. That the books, they have not been changed. They have not been manipulated. They're, there's not a secret set of uh, church books that the early people had that we have differently. No, that is false. That's a lie. Because we have over 5,000 copies of the Old and New Testament, and they all say the same thing. They all say the same thing, the same gospel, the same 
all the New Testament we have, they say that. What about the Apocrypha? If you were raised Catholic, you know the Catholic Church, they have a few more books. This is called the, the we call the Apocrypha, which means like the hidden books. That's what that word means, the Apocrypha. These words, this documented some of the time between Malachi, the 300 years, the end of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, to the, the Gospels. However, no Jewish person recognizes the Apocrypha. These are Old Testament books. No Jewish person recognized these. Um, it was a response to the Reformation that happened in the 1500. The Reformation happened. Uh, people thought that the scripture should be our ultimate guide, not the church. And in response, the Catholics had the Counter-Reformation and the Council of Trent around the 1500s. I don't have the exact date in front of me. They said, we're going to include the Apocrypha in our Bible to distinguish ourselves from the Protestants. But there's no, like, while these books can be helpful for understanding history, they are not, uh, they're not written by God. They're not God-breathed. Like any other book that we read as Christians, I read lots of Christian books. They're helpful sometimes. The Apocrypha can be helpful, but it's not scripture. So as a response to the Reformation, of, I mentioned before the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found them in the, in the 40s, which confirmed that the, the Dead Sea Scrolls have every single book of the Old Testament, I think except for Esther. So it's confirming what we already knew. They found them not far from here, right, in Jordan, with very ancient copies of these texts. And there's also thousands of the Greek and Hebrew texts which all say the same thing, except for slight variations on maybe an animal or a certain word. There's no doctrine that's different in any of these texts. So we can trust this guide. And these words are not just written by men, but they're inspired by God. That's what it says here. They're God-breathed. He wrote this to Timothy, the second Timothy. This is the, near the end of Paul's life. His most faithful disciple, he calls him a son in the Lord. Right? Paul never had physical children, but he considers Timothy his spiritual son. And he said, these words are God-breathed. They're not just written by men. They're written by God. The Lord himself writes them. Now, of course, it's not like God put them in a trance or wrote it all down, saying write these words down word by word. God uses their personality and style, which they all the books have different styles and personalities in them from the writer. But God is still sovereign over that and still used them to write what he wanted to tell them. Just like the meaning of Jesus. Is Jesus God or is he man? Question for the audience. He's both. He's God and man. So the, these scriptures, are they written by God or are they written by man? They're written by both. Peter's style is different than Paul's, but they're also written by God. So while the author's personality and style is in there, they're still written by the Lord. And here's, a, note, here's a, uh, a quote. This is in the scriptures according to 2 Peter. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, 
the same Paul who wrote the books of the New Testament, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So even Peter recognized that the writings of Paul were not just written by Paul, but recognized them as scripture, as the Bible. So we can trust this guy. We can trust it. And it has authority because it is the words of God. So we stand as people, as a church, under the authority of the Bible. I don't stand above it. I stand under If I say something that's not biblical, that's not in the Bible, then you can call me out on it. The Bible is our ultimate authority. And we also believe that the original documents, the original Greek and Hebrew documents, are inerrant, which means they have no errors. The original documents have no mistakes. It's not like Thomas Jefferson was one of the founding fathers of the United States, a great leader, but he took a Bible and ripped out all the pages he didn't like. Well, that's not standing under the authority of Scripture. He was not a believer. He was a deist. He stood in authority over the scriptures. You know, this verse doesn't apply to me because I don't like it. So I'm going to rip this page out. No, that's not how we are as a church. That's not what we believe. We stand in authority under the scriptures. So the scriptures clearly are the most clear way that we can understand the word of God. A good friend of mine, her dad... Um, she was in Kuwait for many years, a good friend of ours, her and her husband, but their family fell apart because her dad said God told him he wants him to be happy, so he divorced his wife and married somebody 20 years younger. Well, God may want you to be happy, but that's clearly not what the Bible says. So he was standing in authority above the scriptures. The scriptures, we stand in authority under them. Right? Not that we live perfectly, we don't. We sin, but I still believe that what the Bible said is true, and that's what we believe as a church. So that's the guide. We can trust the guide because of these reasons. If you have more questions about this, I'm happy to talk to you about the, what, what the Bible says and what it means. Third, it is a guide to life, joy, fruit, and love. It's not just about do's and don'ts. It's not just about the laws, because... The laws are in the Bible, but the laws also show the people that they could not keep the law. Right? The laws were there showing that the people disobeyed the laws. So it's not about doing all the things that they, they did, because the law was there to show us that we cannot keep the law, because we ourselves are the problem. The scripture is not the problem. We are the problem, because we are sinful people. We are broken. The world is broken. We live in it. So the 613 laws that was given to Moses to give to the people, they could not keep them. That's why the whole story of the Old and New Testament is about Jesus leading up to Jesus and talking about life in Jesus. Jesus is the God because Jesus is revealed in the Word. It also says in John that the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh, which is Jesus. Jesus was also the Word. 
is also the God. At the same time, God's rules are the best way to live life. Right? The way that God intended the, His rules and His economy are the best way. You have the most peace in your life and the less pain in your life if you obey God and His rules. But more importantly than the rules, the, the, the Bible gives hope and peace to you. The hope, like I mentioned in Revelation 21, that's a hope that when I die, I will be with Jesus forever and all the problems of this life will be gone. Right? The Bible gives me hope more than it gives me rules. And it gives me peace that even if I'm, do, even if I'm suffering, even if I'm in pain, even if things are not going the way I want them to, if I'm listening to God and listening to His Word, it gives me a supernatural peace. Because as believers, we have a promise, many promises from God that He will be with us, that He will guide us, that He will love us, in spite of the difficulty you might be going through, in the midst of the circumstances. And I'm going through them too. There's things in my life that are really difficult. I'm sure in many of yours too, they're really difficult. I see lots of babies, lots of sleepless nights that I'm sure happening among this church. But even in the difficulty, God is with us. It says, one of, one of these promises that I love, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. Right, this is talking to the people of Israel originally who are in Babylon, taken away from their homeland. But it also applies to us today. That God has plans for you if you believe in Jesus. Plans for welfare and not for evil. And then you, we can call upon Jesus. This is one of the promises. We can call upon Jesus and he will answer us. He will speak back to us. If we ask him, if we pray, God, speak to me. Show me what you want me to do. He will speak. So, we need, you need, I need this hope that God is not going to fail us or that we're not going to live aimlessly. But we need this guide to do this. You know, to, to fulfill God's plans for us in Kuwait, to fulfill the works that he set out for us, he said in Ephesians, we need to be reading his word. And he will, if we call out to him and read his word and ask him to make it clear, he will do that. That is a promise. If you are a believer, God gives you the Holy Spirit, which will take the words on the page and make them come alive for you. He will hear us and he will answer us, which is the good news. This is what the Bible is for. This is why we should be excited that we have a book that is full of hope and promises. Full of hope and promises. And as, as we read it, we can be filled, even in the, whatever circumstances we're in. Some of the people feel like they're in a holding pattern in Kuwait. What am I supposed to be doing here? If you read his word, he will give you clarity on what you're supposed to be doing here. You're, like I said before, you're not just here to, to have a job and to make money and to enjoy your family. Those are all good things. Those are not evil things. Those are good things. That's not all God has you for. He has a plan and a purpose for you. 
for, to do his will, and that starts with reading his word. And that's why we as a church mostly study books of the Bible. Yes, we do series, topical things like I'm doing today, but we've spent the last several years going through books of the Bible. Like I said, we're, we're going to start Nehemiah in the next couple weeks. Another great Old Testament book about leadership, about living according to God's will, doing God's will. And as we interact with it, it will impact our lives. It will accomplish its purpose. Even if it feels like routine, God meets us. I'm going to conclude, Ben, if you can come up. Or you, Zane. <laughs> Here's what it says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprouts, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So in conclusion, God's word, even a casual brush, even five minutes in the Word is going to have an impact on your life, brothers and sisters. You don't need to spend 10 hours a day. Now, obviously, that's, that's ideal, but we all have lives. But even the most casual encounter with the Word, and this is a verse for me as a pastor. So even if my sermon makes no sense and is terrible, just by reading the Scriptures, it's going to impact my life and your life. So don't be like myself in Nepal, not getting a guide. As believers, we have the best guide, which is his word. It's a spiritual guide. It's a guide that's much more important than getting lost in Nepal. It's a guide for your eternity, this life and the next life. It was written by God and man. It's perfect and authoritative in our lives. It is written by God and man. And it is not here to give you shame, but it's to give you life and hope. So start today, like I mentioned before, if you have the Bible app, I've been doing this recently myself. The Bible app has a verse of the day, has a scripture, it has a video, it has a response and a reflection, and there's a time for prayer afterwards. If you, if you have not read the Bible, start there. The Bible app has a verse of the day. I find it very helpful and life-giving. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this time. I pray that you would... Uh, can we stand on our feet too as we, as we pray? God, I just ask that you would give us a heart for your word, that you give us a desire to read. I pray for all of us that you would, we would take this guide seriously in our hearts and in our minds. In whatever way we can, I know we're all very busy people. We all have a lot going on. I get that, and I understand that, Lord. But I know that reading the Bible and spending time with you in the word is non-negotiable. So wherever you have us in our paths, God, that you would show us where you want us to increase or intensify our reading so we can get to know you better and your great promises for us and this church and our life. God, we love you. Thank you for your word that it gives us life and peace and hope and joy. And we ask for these things in your great name, King Jesus. Amen. 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 We're going to do one more song and then I'll give the benediction.